You can turn in your Bibles to James chapter 1. We're going to be looking at the first few verses of James chapter 1 tonight. And uh, So look there in your Bible. If you don't have your Bible, open up your phone app. Uh, I want your eyes looking at the text tonight. There's some things that we need to pay careful attention to in the grammar and wording if we're going to understand uh, what Jesus' brother James is going to say to us in this text. Uh, it's, a, it's a delight to be with you again. My wife, uh, Julie, and I love coming here and worshiping among you and As I was sitting, worshiping with you, I was thinking of Paul's words where he writes to the church, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. And uh, when I remember Harvest Church, I'm thankful. I'm thankful uh, for what you've done for us at Grace Fellowship, now that we have become a particular church, and just so thankful how you shared your resources with us, you shared your elders with us, you shared your hearts and prayers with us, and so I'm thankful for you. And I'm reminded also of what uh, David said in Psalm 16, that the saints in the world are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. And so I just want you to know that you are the excellent ones, and I am delighted in you. I'm delighted in you as the saints of God, and uh, it's a joy to be looking to God's word with you together. James chapter 1, we'll read verses 1 through 4, uh, focusing on 2 to 4 as our text. This is God's holy word. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we need your help. We need your spirit to be among us. We ask that he would open our eyes and open our hearts, that you would use your word like a hammer and like a fire to mold us and shape us and conform us to the image of Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. This text is a really important text, and it's important because it helps us understand the way in which we ought to think about and process through the trials that we inevitably encounter in life. And it's important that you have always the right framing of a situation, understanding the context, because that changes the way you feel about it and experience it significantly. Uh, So, for example, if uh, last week I told you that uh, my niece and nephew were over, and my nephew or my niece went and she snatched a candy bar out of my nephew's hand, you'd think that was kind of mean of her. But then if you found out that he had a peanut allergy and she knew there were some nuts in that candy bar, then all of a sudden the reframing, she was actually doing him quite the favor. How we reframe and understand actually the full context of a situation helps us understand it better. And it's a similar thing here with trials. We need to reframe them from God's perspective if we're to understand them aright. And what I want us to really understand tonight um, I want us to rejoice in the conviction that even our most lament, in our most lamentable and grievous circumstances, God is still working graciously in the hearts of his children. Most terrible circumstances, God is still at work in you as his children. Okay, look at verse 2 with me. James says, Count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds. 
Notice James doesn't say if you meet trials of various kinds, but when you meet trials of various kinds. The meeting of these trials is going to be inevitable. And the word he uses for meeting trials is really interesting. It's a word that sort of means uh, when you happen upon trials, when they unexpectedly fall upon you. Uh, this word's only used two other times in the New Testament. One of them is, you remember the parable of the Good Samaritan, right? And it says that the Samaritan was going away, on his way, and he fell among robbers. That is, he, they happened upon him unexpectedly, okay? He, he met this unexpected trial. Or in another time, it's used of uh, Paul when he's on that ship going on his missionary journey, and it says they happened upon a reef. They unexpectedly encountered this reef. And so James is saying, you're going to happen upon trials. Trials are going to inevitably come to you. And he says it's trials that are of various kinds. The word there is actually multicolored. That is, in this life, you can expect to meet various shades and hues of every sort of trial under the sun. And kind of the scary thing for us is that we don't know what sorts of trials we might happen upon, what sorts of trials might happen upon us. The possibilities of the suffering and pain we can experience in this life is veritably endless. All sorts of shades and hues. And that's life in this fallen world. It's one that's subject to corruption and death where we meet trials at seemingly at random. Ecclesiastes, uh, the, the preacher says that time and chance happen to us all. That is, from our perspective, these trials don't make sense. We don't know why or where they come from or why we got met with the illness and not someone else. Manifold, multicolored trials. And again, we want to understand this concept of trials. The word here is tests. Uh, coming upon these tests, and the idea of testing, it, it branches off. You could think of testing as the category, and the two branches that come off it are the ideas of trials and temptations. Okay, this is the same word that's in the Lord's Prayer, um, lead us not into temptation. And this Greek word for tests sometimes gets translated as temptations, sometimes as trials. And you might think that, those sound kind of different, right? Well, I want you to know there's actually a great connection. Because really, every trial presents temptation, and every temptation is sort of like a trial. So they go hand in hand. Right? Think with me. Think of the temptations we experience. If you've experienced a besetting sin, a temptation that frequently assaults you, and you know what it feels like to war against it, and to fight against, and to feel like you're constantly trying to pull at those weeds that keep growing up, you know that those temptations feel an awful lot like a trial, like a heavy burden, like an oppression that's on you. Our temptations are burdensome trials. But similarly, every trial also presents us with temptation. Right? Do you remember the Israelites in the wilderness going about, meeting all these various trials, and the temptation kept coming to them to complain, to grumble against God, to murmur? That is, the trials produced particular temptations. And both trials and temptations are tests. James calls them in the text, tests of our faith. When you're under a trial, the test for you is, 
will you trust God in your trial? Will you hope in God? When you're in temptation, the test for you is, will you obey God? Will you keep his word above your own desires? And so we're inevitably going to meet various trials and temptations, various tests of faith in our life. And so the question for you and I tonight is, how ought we to respond to them? How ought we to think about them? And that's where we see James gives us one command in this text. He gives us one imperative. Look again at verse 2. He simply says, count it all joy. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Simply that, count it all joy. The idea of counting it joy is not, uh, boys and girls, if you can count, you know, you get to an age where you realize you can count to 100. And then I remember one time I was sitting when I was a kid, and I think I counted to like 2,000. I thought it was like the greatest accomplishment of all time. I was like, I just counted to 2,000. It's not counting like that. It's uh, considering. Um, and actually the word means to rule or have authority. So James is using this authority picture here to say that of all the thoughts that might arise in your mind, kind of like a crowd of thoughts, right? When you're in a hard time, the thoughts come in, thoughts of fear, thoughts of anxiety, thoughts of worry and stress. James says the thought that needs to stand up and take charge, the one that needs to have the rule and authority is the thought, all joy, okay? It's not going to be the only thought, but the leading thought. It's the thought that should have the rule in your mind. That is, James is commending here a particular state of mind. It's a mental consideration that's important for us to have in our temptations and trials. Consider it all joy. Now, it's important that we get that it right, right? You see in your Bible it says, count it all joy. It's really important that we get what this is talking about right, because James is not saying count your trials all joy. Notice it doesn't say that. It's not count your trials all joy. He says, count it all joy when you encounter trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. It's not the trials that bring about this mindset of joy, but it's a particular knowledge that you can have within your trials that is the cause for this joyful thought. Okay, it's a knowledge, a for you knowing. A knowledge. And this is important to understand because this text is often used in an unhelpful way. This text can often be given to people in their trials in such a way that it comes across as sort of a pie in the sky, uh, just glaze it over, think happy thoughts, pixie dust sort of thought. Just count it all joy, count it all joy. And we know that that doesn't seem quite right. If you're in a trial that doesn't sit right with you and it comes across as immature, uh, perhaps even offensive, and it does seem then to go against what we learn in Scripture about lament. Right? We know so often in the Psalms, David is grieving and lamenting his oppressions, his enemies, the corruption and sin in this world. And so we know that this text can't be used in a way that nullifies godly grief and lament, and that's why it's so important that we understand what James is saying properly. Because counting it all joy is not opposed to grief and lament. It is good and right to grieve the sufferings of this world, 
to lament the pain and ruptures that sin has caused in God's good creation. This suffering had no part in the original plan of God in the garden, and it's going to have no part again when God has recreated all things in the new world. This pain and suffering is grievous, and it's worth lamenting. And so, brothers and sisters, don't feel like here at church you need to hide all your pain and try to coat it over with a smile. You don't need to pretend all is well when it's not. Uh, There's a phrase we often use at Grace Fellowship where we just like to say that this church, we want it to be a place for weakness, a place where it's okay to be weak, okay to not be okay. So if James is not saying something that's opposed to lament and grief, what is he saying? James is saying that for Christians, although we do grieve and lament the causes and effects of sin in this world, we can find joy in the knowledge of what God is doing in us through our sufferings. Take joy in the knowledge of what God is doing in us, even in our sufferings. This is why James says we can consider it all joy in our trials. Verse 3, take a look. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. The testing of your faith produces steadfastness. That's why James says you can have joy. And notice again the language. Okay, This is something you might have missed before. James doesn't say the testing of your faith might produce steadfastness. He doesn't say that the testing of your faith should produce steadfastness. He doesn't say that when your faith is tested, you should be praying that hopefully there will be some steadfastness that comes out of it. He says the testing of your faith produces this steadfastness. That is, the steadfastness is an inevitable consequence of the testing. Now, that's no small detail. That is a significant effect. It's amazing. James is saying that if you're a believer, every trial, every temptation that you have encountered and will encounter has produced and will produce steadfastness in your life. The idea of steadfastness here is the same idea as endurance or patience or perseverance. And it's used most often in Scripture to refer to an enduring faith, the faith that perseveres to the end and is saved. Who doesn't want strong, steadfast, persevering, and enduring faith? That's what trials and temptations inevitably produce in the life of the believer. Now, all believers have faith, and faith is sort of, you can think of it like a spiritual muscle. It's there, but it may be stronger or weaker in us, and we are called to exercise the muscle of faith. But the issue is that sometimes when life is good, we don't feel any compulsion to exercise that muscle. It's like you're there in your living room, and at some point you bought a treadmill, and it's there, but you don't get on it because it seems like too much work. The couch is a little more comfortable, and it's, it's a nice option. And that's often kind of the way we feel in our spiritual life. We know we should exercise our faith through the means of grace, but we're comfortable. And the treadmill is there just as one other option among many. But being in a trial, being in a situation of suffering, is like being picked up and placed directly on a treadmill that's already going. And maybe it feels like it's going at a speed that's almost greater than you can handle. And you are being forced into a run, 
even in a way that you wouldn't want. But here's the thing, if you are running, even if it's painful and hurting, you're building your heart. You're increasing your cardiovascular strength and endurance. And in the same way, when you've been placed into a trial, your faith is being exercised in greater ways than you know. Being in a trial is not just like being in a room with a treadmill, but being placed directly on it. And just as that pain of exercise leads to those joyful results of physical health, so the pain of trials leads to spiritual health, this steadfastness. And in this result, you can rejoice. And so just consider with me this amazing fact, that if you're a believer, in every trial or temptation you've ever encountered, God has been working, preserving, and giving you an enduring, steadfast faith. Every time. That's what James says. But maybe you're thinking, you're like, well, I know that I haven't always borne up under sufferings well. I know I've fallen into complaint. I've known, I know I've succumbed to temptations. So how is this true of me that I can say God's been giving me steadfast faith when I feel like I've seen my faith falter? I've seen my own faith fail. Well, consider this. Do you realize that every temptation to sin you've ever encountered could have been the sin that led you headlong on a path of wickedness to flee from the God you've known and never to return? Do you not know people that grew up in church who you maybe knew in this very body and have ran headlong after sin and made shipwreck of their faith, as Paul said? Did you do that, or are you still here? Every trial you've ever encountered could have been the trial that led you to shake your fist at God and say, what more have I to do with you? And again, cause you to shipwreck your faith, as Paul says. But if you're still here, you're still saying, God, have mercy on me, a sinner, then your faith, even if the flame on the candle of your heart is flickering and it seems faint, if the flame is still there, then God has preserved and given you a persevering faith. Every dark tunnel you've ever been taken through, when you arrive on the other side with faith intact, God has given you strength in that faith. So, despite your faltering, despite your failing, you can see God's faith-strengthening power at work in your life. If you've ever gone on a long race, maybe you've uh, you know, tried to run a half marathon or something, uh, you know that when you're long distance running, you don't usually feel very powerful and strong in it. You usually feel sore and tired and weak and close to giving up the whole time. But then you make it to the end and you realize, my strength wasn't found in that I had enough power to sprint halfway through, but that you endured and showed forth a persevering strength. And that is the faith that God works in his people over the long term. In those pains, in the pain of the uh, marathon of this life, working a faith that is strong and perseveres. And God is working this steadfast faith. Now, why do you want it? Why should you care about having this steadfastness? Because this steadfastness, James says, is the way to perfection. That's what verse 4 says. Look at verse 4. 
Let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. To be perfect and complete. The, the word for perfection here is the idea of maturity. That is, of having come and reached the goal that you were hoping for. Uh, you, you might think of how a young child grows up into the end of their biology to be a full-grown man or woman. And they are coming to maturity. And that's what James is saying these trials are working. A mature faith. Consider how this term is used elsewhere in the New Testament. In Matthew 5.48, Jesus says to his disciples, Be perfect, therefore, as your Father in heaven is perfect. We're called to mirror the perfection of our Heavenly Father himself. And further, in Colossians 1.28, Paul says that Jesus we proclaim warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature or perfect in Christ. This is the goal God has for us as his children. This is the goal of Christian ministry, to see us mature into the image of Christ, Christ-likeness, true Christianity. And the wonderful thing is that as you mature more and more into the image of Christ, that means you more and more enter into the joy of Christ. God in his perfect nature has perfect blessedness, perfect joy. And the more we become like God through the work of his spirit in our hearts, the more we actually enter into the joy of God himself. And that is a gracious gift, a gracious gift to the children of God. And this, this whole idea, it accords exactly with what Paul writes in Romans chapter 5, verses 3 to 5. He says this, that we can rejoice in our sufferings knowing, notice again the knowledge here, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. How amazing is it that God can use even our worst circumstances, our most horrible trials, to shed abroad his love and hope and joy in our hearts. What an amazing gift that is. Do you realize what a gift that is, that God uses your trials to make you like Jesus, that you might enter into his joy? That's incredible. Because do you realize that in the random, in the seemingly pointless suffering we experience, that that's all it might have just been. Your suffering might have just been pointless. That's all you get with a naturalistic view of the world. That's all you get on materialism. That's all you get on atheism, is random, pointless suffering. But that God would take sinners like us and actually seek to do us good in his infinite wisdom to actually grant us Christ-like, Christ-likeness and Christ-like joy through our sufferings, that is the most incredible of gifts. It's a gift that we don't deserve. And we think, why would God do that for me? Why would God allow this suffering that I deserve due to our sins and my sins, why would he allow that to turn out for my eternal good? Why would God do that? It's because God's already done a whole lot more than that for you, if you trust in him. God's already given his only son to bear your sin, 
to carry your shame, that you might have eternal, joyful life in him. For Jesus to come, live as one of us, die the death that we deserved, rise conquering death, conquering sin, rising to grant us the spirit and bring us to new life. If God has done that for us, how much more can we trust that he will do us good in our trials? Christ already underwent the greatest trial for us, the man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, who offered loud cries with tears, Hebrews says, to God. He's already given us the greatest gift, and he still, even more, gives us this gift in our trials. Steadfast faith. And Jesus' victory ensures for us, it ensures for the child of God that no pain in this life will ultimately be pointless. The victory of Christ ensures that your sufferings will not ultimately be wasted, but will be found to result in your Christ-likeness and the eternal resounding glory of God. What a gift God gives. What a joy it is to be a child of God. Do you realize... Even like you young people here, do you realize that people in the world don't have this gift? They don't have the comfort that comes from knowing that all the worst things we experience, God is actually turning to the good of his children. That's not something to take lightly. That's something to value. So, whatever trial or temptation you're experiencing, lament it, grieve for the pain, but then lift your eyes to the God who's doing far more abundantly than all you can ask or imagine in it. Turn your eyes to the God that is working in you steadfast faith, trusting that your Father loves you and he is for you and will continue to be for you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are the God of lights and in you there's no changing, no turning away from your people and every good gift comes from you. We thank you for this gift you give us in our trials, that you, even in the worst things, are working the best in us, working in us Christ-likeness, a faith that trusts you and hopes in you. We thank you for all the trials and temptations we've undergone where you have preserved our faith and kept us by your powerful spirit and word. We thank you, Lord, that you have been working endurance in us in all our trials and that none of them will ultimately be wasted, that none of them will ultimately be pointless, but that we can trust in you and put all our hope in you. So, Lord, we say to our souls even tonight, soul, put your hope in God, my rock, my fortress, and my salvation. Would we ever more hope in you, giver of all good gifts, divine comforter, wonderful heavenly Father, we thank you for all that you are to us in Jesus. Grant us strength to endure. Work in us resolute faith, the faith that perseveres unto final perfection. And would you grant all this for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing a song of application, just delighting in God and uh, de declaring what he does for us in our trials.
writer to the Hebrews for 12, 13 chapters has been addressing people like you and me who are tempted every day to give up, to shrink back, to not endure, to not count it all joy. And he speaks to you and me this, this last good word, a benediction. Now may the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ, that great shepherd of the sheep, may he equip you with everything good to do his will, working in you what is pleasing in his sight through Jesus, to whom belongs glory forever and ever. Amen.